Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please, help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in $5 per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcasting network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns, so I am coming to y'all with my hat in my hand, so please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a Cash App profile for the show, so one-time contributions can be sent there, and all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Today, we have a special guest on the show, Mr. Todd Watkins, who is running for sheriff of El Paso County, Colorado. Mr. Watkins, thank you so much for coming on, and how are you today? I am splendid. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, and thank you again for your time and for coming on. So just so you know the audience that you're speaking to today, uh, myself as the host, I'm a former libertarian turned Jeffersonian, so on this show... We are in favor of strong states' rights and political decentralization to the fullest extent realistically possible. So with that said, can you tell us a bit about yourself before we start the questions? Sure. Uh, So uh, Todd Watkins, and I am running for sheriff in El Paso County, Colorado. Uh, I'm originally from Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, Dad was a cop. Father-in-law was a cop. Uh, My son's a cop up in the county north of us uh, here in Colorado. And I uh, did four years in the U.S. Army back the end of the Cold War and uh, went to college for a little bit in Arizona and joined the Border Patrol in 1997. Uh, did that for 24 years, retired on May 31st of last year. And uh, it, I entered uh, the race for sheriff here in, in Colorado about the first week of November of uh, 21. Okay, so how how did you end up in Colorado? Was that with the Border Patrol? Were you assigned here? Yeah, yeah. That's you're you're the first person to ask me how a Border Patrol guy got to Colorado, which uh, was uh, kind of odd that no one ever <laughs> <laughs> thought to ask that. Uh, yeah, so I came here as a military liaison, LNO. It's called in the in DOD world. Uh, so uh, a staff advisor from Homeland Security, Customs, Border Protection to Special Operations Command North, which is headquartered in uh, Peterson Air Force Base in uh, Colorado Springs. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So with you serving in the military in the time period you did, I'm honestly just kind of personally curious about this. So with you serving towards the end of the Cold War, were you around kind of like when the real split was happening between what's called the old right and the new right? 
in our country, not well. I mean, I, 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 I would be lying if I said I was politically aware then. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I did my whole uh, enlistment in Germany, so you know, I, it was West Germany when I got there, and it was East Germany when I, or I'm sorry, it was uh, just just all one Germany when I left. So po- politically, I, I don't know, man. I, I wasn't terribly savvy of of what was going on there. It, you know, I, I, I uh, went, went through basic training at the tail end of uh, Reagan's uh, second second term. And, uh, you know, by the time I landed in uh, in West Germany, uh, well, I, 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 Daddy Bush would have been uh, inaugurated three weeks after I got because I got there, I think, on the is either the second or third of January that I that I landed. So he would have taken the oath, but, you know, on the 20th. OK. So the the old right and the new right when they when they really first split it sounds like your your time would have actually been a little bit after the major fireworks of that particular battle but they they kind of started splitting in the 50s and and 60s and uh basically it was along the grounds of you had the old right who wanted to remain non-interventionist and basically they said look you know we we don't need to try to fight Russia we don't need to become like Russia we just need to be the United States basically more hardcore and be a beacon to the rest of the world they they basically realized you know like the international stage is is what their true audience was and then you had the new right who was basically like no uh you had people like James Burnham who was basically like no to beat Russia we basically need to become like Russia and uh that that's where you in my opinion you get a huge rise in the American bureaucratic state okay yeah so it, it's interesting because um about the time that you would have been going to basic maybe roughly around there you there was kind of like last gasp of of the old right you had this guy named Mel Bradford are, are you familiar with him no uh uh-uh. Well, he he was going to be a Reagan appointee. Uh, Reagan wanted to appoint him as the director of the endowment, I think, for the humanities. And uh, he was actually rejected. That So the neocons, when they had really first kind of started to entrench themselves, they started pitching a fit over the appointment of Mel Bradford because he was critical of Abraham Lincoln. And, it, you know, and it, it sounds kind of trivial now, but it, it really is weird to think about how much different the conservative movement would be now if you had like somebody or if you had somebody like Mel Bradford who was in charge of things that would have impacted the schools and everything else. So it, it really interesting kind of alternative history to think about what could have been there. OK, yeah. Um, I, I mean, our uh, for, for for what it's worth, you know, I was in during the first Gulf War. And uh, although my unit, the one I was in, we did not uh, get deployed. They, they left us in, in Germany. There were many of us wondering exactly why we felt so compelled to go to war with Iraq over the invasion of Kuwait when there were so many other, uh, you know, so-called naked aggression events throughout history that we uh, we stayed rather uh, immovable to. So uh, even among my peers the whole you know globalist fight was not a was not a very popular theme although you know whether whether right or wrong we 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 did see the soviet union as a as a problem globally and you know maybe that's something that 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 could be rethought now that we're you know what 30 40 years after the fact oh absolutely absolutely and that in the 90s you had an alignment of the uh I guess the hangers on of the old right movement, they they didn't really accomplish anything, but you had some of the hangers on like Mel Bradford who kind of joined forces with people like Murray Rothbard. 
And that's also another kind of interesting tidbit to think about what, what may have been had they been able to ever really regain control of the Republican movement. But anyway, we don't want to get bogged down in all that. That is very fascinating stuff to talk about. But we're here today to talk about your campaign. Sure. So now that you've told us a little bit about you as a person, tell us a little bit more about you as a peace officer. Like, what is kind of your guiding philosophy when it comes to that? So I, for, for the record, and it just, you know, truth and disclosure, right? Um, it, as a, I was a border patrol agent, so I, I was a, you know, as a federal agent and, uh, as feds, we're not peace officers that, that is expressly given to the, uh, to the States, the States certify and, uh, you know, uh, brand brand their, their, their policing agencies as peace officers, which is rightfully so. Um, I served all over the Southern border. I, did a four-year hitch up uh, the northern border in upstate New York along Lake Ontario and about three different um, tours through our headquarters in uh, Washington, D.C. And, and technically, that's where I, I retired out of. I retired out of our uh, our national headquarters as an assistant chief. And uh, I was actually functioning as the emergency manager for the Border Patrol. They found out I have a master's degree in that, so they they decided to put me to work in that capacity, um, let's see what else. So uh, I did, did did a lot of the special operations teams. I was a commander of a special operations team for for a bit in El Paso sector. But uh, philosophy wise, for for you know how this how this should function in the local uh, arena, I'll start off with basically my my philosophy of government, and I I do believe what uh, what Mr. Jefferson said about that government which governs least governs best i wholeheartedly wholeheartedly uh believe in that and uh that's one of the driving reasons why i'm running for this office is i do believe that it is imperative that that we as uh, americans we as, as citizens get a hold of our local government and uh that policing effort that is closest to the people is meant to serve the people and keep the peace and not rotely and blindly enforce uh, statutes because they they exist. The the sole purpose of, of government, the reason that we established the government is established among men, is to preserve our rights. And our, our rights come from from you know the laws of nature and nature's God. We we have rights based on the fact that we are we are born as humans. And uh, that is the principal reason for having a, a policing force is to uh, to protect our rights, to preserve our rights from from uh, from criminals and from the government. Did your time at the federal level change your outlook in any way about what government is in reality versus what we've always been taught government is? Yeah. You know, um, especially when you, you compare it to. Uh, you know the, the the writings you know in the uh, you know the federalist papers and all the the different volumes that the founders wrote in their opinion of of what government was and what it was supposed to be and um yeah it did it did change when you when you start com- comparing what the intent was and what what we are now uh government was supposed to be uh you know very very small and now what the federal government is the uh, the largest employer of people in the country it's definitely far larger uh far more expansive than it ought to be uh where where you really see this and and you know, a lot of this is you know the benefit of hindsight right uh 
is when you're in Washington, D.C. at the center of the empire and watching this massive machinery of government bureaucracy uh, and just how expansive it really is. And this this desire to this compulsion to to regulate uh, anything and everything now as as Border Patrol, we didn't really regulate anything, but you 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 did get to see all of the other uh, agencies and components uh, of the government and their efforts in the in you know in that in that field. And actually, you know, we're working among in our own agency, you know, the so-called civilian employees, which are you know the the epitome of the bureaucratic employees that they're. I don't know the way the way they viewed the role of government is, you know, vastly different. I think than what the uh, what the founders intended. Well, I, I guess I would counter. I think it depends on which founder we're talking about. It may maybe maybe I guess more of the uh, the the Hamilton side than the. Uh... Oh, absolutely, that, and that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, Hamilton definitely kind of saw the government as a, as a way to entrench wealth and tie it together where yeah. where it had a common interest, but. Um, as far as your, your response to that, I do find that interesting. So I actually, I used to be in the, in the army and I seeing it firsthand, like seeing the fraud, waste and abuse, the corruption, everything else firsthand, that, that is honestly what made me initially become a libertarian. And then there, there's been a lot of stuff that happened that kind of drove me away from that. But when I started studying Jefferson, that's where it's like, oh, wow. Like all of this stuff, as you're saying, you know, it's supposed to work from the bottom up, not from the top down. Yes. So yep. it's uh, uh, very interesting to hear you say that. Now, even though I've mostly turned away from libertarianism, there is still a somewhat libertarian streak in me that does not like the cops. So we're going to talk about some of the issues from your issue section <laughs> of your campaign page. And in there, you say that you want to reshape the current perception of law enforcement and make police personnel peace officers again, which we've talked about that a little bit. And I, I yep. honestly, I do think this is a great thing. But I'm curious, as sheriff, how are you going to go about enacting that change? So really, it comes. This is stemmed from the fact that the the sheriff and and mind you, any any leader of a law enforcement organization has this authority as that that chief executive of the uh, of the agency is to uh, to set priorities and uh, you know where we're going to invest our our efforts. Uh, there's also there's also a a, a, a retraining we rewiring I, I think that needs to happen. Uh, with uh, with police, they, you know the the good thing about uh, El Paso Sheriff's Office is they have their own academy. They they didn't run one for a long time, which I think was a, a very very bad mistake for them to have not done that. <clears throat> but um, we can inject into that that you know initial entry training uh, those types of philosophies and ideologies of what the role of the police is, and that's. That's to protect the population. We're not here to protect the government. And uh, I want to really stress the point that the sheriff is elected by the people. The sheriff answers to, is responsible to, and accountable to the people. That's why he's elected. Uh, Don't answer to a mayor, to a governor. Uh, Can't be be fired for not towing a a a particular political uh, agenda or, or ideology uh, the sheriff is there to to serve and protect the people from from bad guys from uh, from above and below as it were you know within the the scheme of um, of society 
And uh, that is one thing that I'm absolutely going to make sure every everybody who wears a badge in that agency understands is we're here to protect people's rights. And we're, I'm not going to invest efforts or resources toward uh, enforcing or furthering statutes or, or uh, mandates or agendas that do not that do not preserve uh, people's rights. Uh, I'm, I'm I think the uh, the time of protecting the government needs to needs to be ended. Absolutely, and I, I do agree with that. Now I, I want to follow that up with this. As far as militarization of the police forces locally, even state troopers, SWAT teams, so on and so forth, how big of a factor do you think that is in the current relationship between citizens and cops? So there's I um I, I split a fine hair, I think, with the term militarization. And what I think is a bigger problem is actually the federalization of, of police. Uh, the the ha- having having worked along the southern border and having to deal with uh, you know essentially foreign terrorist organizations that run our southern border now the uh, the the cartels um, the the type of training and equipment that you would need to take on that type of adversary it, there there there's there's a lot of good that comes from uh, from the training and equipment that the military uses. And on a tactical level, um, I don't, I don't believe that the federalization of police, which is what's happening, what is the, the federalization of our local police, turns that turns turned turned it into you know law enforcement vice peacekeeping. So, the the tools which we use to get those jobs done, I don't, I I I I, I see a, I see a, a need a need for it. I, I would never want to go up against an adversary like the uh, CJNG or the uh, the the Sinaloa uh, type cartel, you know, armed with a with a six shooter and you know, a 1964 <laughs> Ford or something like that because everything else is scary. So I, militarization would be a problem if its application, the mindset, the philosophy behind it, and and less the hardware. But the federalization of local of local police is what the big problem is. It's the the big influence from you know usually it's the Department of Justice throws money at the uh, at the agency. It says we'll we'll give you these toys and these training, but you're gonna you're gonna sing for your supper. And I'm I'm not uh, I'm. I'm not going to fall for that. I, I worked for the feds for, for far too long. And, you know, if anybody wants to see an example of what that federalization of, um, of your local police department looks like, you know, in full, full swing or at, at combat speed, as, as they used to say, right. Uh, look at Ottawa over the winter, you know, during the, the, the trucker rally uh, that was the, you know, the, the Canadian federal government, uh, essentially federalized the Ottawa city police and, uh, you know, violated people's rights, <laughs> used them as a standing army. And that's, uh, that's where our, our local police leaders need to be very, very cognizant of the fact that their, their responsibility is to the communities they serve and, and not a federal agency. Right. So now when I say militarization of police, I, I know depending on the context, that can be a weaponized term. So what what I mean by that is kind of like the equipment that they're getting from the feds or like the, this decommissioned military stuff. But but also I saw a lot of this when I was in the army. People would get out and there was a very natural pipeline, uh, it seemed, for people to get out of the military and go straight into police work. 
And sometimes that would be good because, you know, sometimes you did have people like myself who were like, yeah, now that I've seen all this firsthand, I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, but then sometimes you had the people who were like, well, I was just tired of the army, but now, you know, I, I'm going to go basically act out my aggression elsewhere. And, and they really did. Those types, unfortunately, kind of seemed to carry the mindset with them that everybody around them was a threat to be neutralized. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I do kind of still feel that that is a problem. Have, have you seen very much of that or not so much? Not, not so much in, in, uh, in my world. Did I see that? Uh, the, the, the veterans that, that, you know, we got in the, uh, the border patrol were, I'll just, they were easily trainable, you know? Um, and there, there are a lot of, uh, skill sets and I'll say, um, conditioning that was very applicable, especially when you look at the border patrol, we're largely out outdoors, out in, out in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, it's, it's a different kind of person to, to kind of, uh, you know, to have, to have, uh, you know, rugged and, uh, you know, arduous environments as your, as your workplace. So there was some utility in that we, we were not, you know, in cities inside, we were out in deserts, mountains, you know, wilderness areas. So it was, you know, it was, uh, it, it was, it was hard work. It, it was just f- physically arduous. So that, that translated, uh, I'll, I'll go back to the, the, the training, right. And there is a rewiring that has to happen. And it is imperative that those during your, your hiring, uh, screening processes, you, you identify those types of personalities where if you can't, if you can't, uh, retrain, say the, you know, shoot to kill to a discretionary, uh, use of force, then you've got a problem, but you have to, you have to identify that early on. Um, I didn't notice a lot of, you know, guys coming out of the, coming out of the surface and, and, you know, we, they, I, I saw a, a large population come, you know, from the, from the war eras, you know, uh, after 2001, 2002, we, we got a lot of, a lot of trainees came in and the vast majority of them that came from the, from the service were, they were good guys, you know, um, I don't know how many got screened out. But those that made it through, they were they were good. And I, I didn't I didn't see any, uh, you know, overly aggressive tendencies. That's, well, that's good. That's good. I just know, like, I, I don't know, I, I guess maybe it's it's a function of my proximity to it and just kind of knowing some of the guys the way I, I knew them. But anyway, uh, so the next point that I want to bring up is going to relate to civil asset forfeiture. So on your platform, you say explicitly you want to end that practice. Fully support that. But... And reading some state reports, it does seem that local law enforcement divisions and local governmental agencies within the state received over $3.2 million from that last year. So how would you offset the loss to the budget from that? So the the sheriff's budget here is already, you know, right around 90 mil. Um, I don't see that really impacting uh, El Paso (laughs) uh, terribly. And if it does too bad. You know, the, we're, I'm not, I'm not taking, uh, I'm not going to profit off of what is, you know, quite clearly a constitutional violation. You, you the, the fifth amendment, uh, states very clearly that if property is going to be seized by the government, there's just compensation that comes, comes along with it. And, you know, never mind the, the fourth amendment issues of, uh, probable cause that, that have to accompany that. And uh, and due process, you know, back to the Fifth Amendment. 
there's there's not a lot of due process with that civil asset forfeiture. So I, I see it as a, a, a rather, uh, you know, despotic type of kind of practice. Um, either we have uh, we have probable cause to uh, to bring criminal charges and seize evidence or you don't. That's that's how I how I look at that. And that goes along with red flag, too. Absolutely. So the, the Fifth Amendment stuff aside, and, and I don't mean to be flipping here, but just kind of yeah. focusing more on the state level. I, I would say that civil asset forfeiture is also in direct violation of Colorado State Constitution, Article One, Section Seven, which which guarantees due process and security of property and yeah. person. So it's definitely um, I, I agree with that plank. That's that's good. And it's good to hear that you don't necessarily care about the impact of funding that may happen there, albeit it doesn't sound like it would be large. Actually, I think. So that report did break it down by county. I think actually El Paso only got, I, I want to say it was like 600000 I was not aware that the uh, budget was so large for that. So definitely six hundred grand is a drop in the bucket compared to $90 million. So that that's good. That's good. It sounds yeah. like they won't miss it too much. No, and there, there are some other issues of some some funding that they that they get that I uh, I would like to uh, I would like to find out what happened to it because I don't think that they're spending it the way it was intended, and it was an actual Tabor exception. There there might be some fireworks if I if I get into that office and I uh, and I unco- and I do an audit to find out what they did with that money. So okay, okay, absolutely. So. Yeah, I, I would honestly, I'd be curious to know too, as far as like the uh, the marijuana tax revenue, because I, I mean, I know the state publishes all these reports and they say this is where the money's going, yada yada. But at the same time, it's like you still Do you believe that? continuously say it's never enough. So where is it actually going? So, I, yeah, that that's that's another that's another big question I think that needs to be asked is uh, where 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 is it going? I mean, you know, when we moved here in 2015, you know, marijuana had always already been been legalized and if, you know of course there's gonna be a sin tax and they're gonna make a make buckets of money i i thought i expected to get here in the streets to be paved with with gold and uh they're not paved with gold <laughs> they're they're hardly paved at yeah. all so yeah. no you're absolutely right well what kills me is is one the road funding which you know the the official city of colorado springs it, it, recreational still not legal but um as as right. far as like the rest of the county though where it is legal it, it kills me because even down around Manitou, the roads aren't great. I mean, they're not as bad as like my part of the county, but, th- you know, they're not great <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, d- definitely that that's something that surprised me, too. I figured, you know, money would be flowing out of their ears from that, it, which it is. I, I mean, every year there it seems like they're taking in a record amount of tax revenue from that. So that that's that is the question, though. <laughs> what are, what are they doing with it? And uh you know, it's always a runaround kind of answer. And, and one of the things, well, Colorado Springs didn't didn't uh, legalize recreational marijuana, so they're not benefiting from that tax. And you know what? Denver did, and Denver is a hellhole. Yes, <laughs> so, yes, no, you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, Denver Denver's bad as far as the roads are concerned. Denver's really bad. Uh, like I said, Manitou is is pretty bad, and Manitou gets a lot of local traffic here from the springs. So it, it's crazy. But let's talk about your next plank. And this is actually the one that prompted me to reach out to you because this is kind of like the uh, modern heretics term in American politics. So you have a nullification plank in there. So yep. what made what motivated you to include that? Yeah, I'm so if it, just a, a rather simple calculus, right? If the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land and as a as an enforcer of laws, I am. I swear an oath to that constitution, to that supreme law, 
then anything that controverts that, if I enforce that, I'm actually violating my oath. I'm actually violating the supreme law of the land, a, 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 a lower echelon of government. And by the way, all echelons of government are beneath the Constitution, including the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Supreme Court, the, you know, the, the federal government is is beneath the U.S. Constitution. We, you cannot make a law that is contrary to the Constitution or abrogates the Constitution. And enforcing that, I think, is a violation of my oath. So I, I would not do that. And uh, in, in my, my application of nullification is, is simple. If, if I don't enforce it, then I've, I've, I've nullified it to the greatest extent that I can in my capacity. Um, it, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's not dissimilar, I think, from say a jury nullification and, uh, the, uh, you may, you might have a better example, but the one that comes to my mind, not necessarily a favorite, but, uh, the, the OJ Simpson trial, <laughs> they, you know, they, they, they acquitted in the, in the face of overwhelming evidence, uh, because they, the jury felt that it was the you know, the, the wrong time and the wrong guy to charge with that. So they, they acquitted him and they, and that's a jury can do that. And they did. So, you know, when, when you think of, uh, or at least the way, the way that I'm thinking of, of nullification. And I, I know, you know, the, you know, Calhoun wrote, wrote quite a bit about it. What was in, you know, late 1820s, early 1830s. Um, so the, at a more local level, from the perspective of somebody who would be in charge of a, uh, a policing agency, you do not take action. You do not enforce that which is contrary to the Constitution. If if a uh, if a if a law passed by anybody or a or, you know, mandate, since mandates are are kind of a, a hot topic after after the last couple of years, uh, violates or is in contrary to the Constitution or violates constitutional protections. You simply don't enforce it. You render it, you render it null by not acting on it. And you, uh, if you've been in anybody who's been in law enforcement would uh, would understand that a a law is only as effective as its will and ability to be enforced. You can pass any law that you want, any number of laws that you want, but if nobody enforces it, it doesn't have it doesn't have any impact. It's you know, kind of the, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, it does it, does it make a sound? It will, if the police don't enforce a law, does that law really matter? Okay. So then from there, uh, I'm going to take a guess here. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, would you nullify state law if you thought it was in conflict with the federal constitution? Yeah, sure. Sure. I, I mean that the, the, the U S constitution is a supreme law of the land period in the sentence. Well, but it's not. It's only supreme insofar as it's pursuant to the Constitution or the enumerated powers, right? In Article One, Section Eight. So, well, yes. So that's, but the the, the Constitution can't contradict itself. The Constitution is supreme. So federal. So th- that's, and this is a really. I'm glad you brought this up. This is a really, really important distinction. Federal law does not trump anything if it conflicts with the with the Constitution. The, the U.S. Congress can can enact uh, unconstitutional laws. They can they can pass an unconstitutional uh, piece of legislation. If it doesn't, if it strays from the Constitution, it's it's DOA as far as I'm concerned. Same with the state. OK, so let, let me ask you this, then. I'm, I'm sure you probably heard about the Supreme Court decision yesterday with the uh, New York Pistol and Rifle yeah. Association. 
Yes. Okay. Uh, in your opinion, was that a good or a bad decision? I think that was a pretty good decision. Okay. So, and, and this is why I asked this. So if the state of Colorado, now Colorado would actually be in violation of its own state constitution. However, the state of New York was not. New York state constitution does not say anything about the right to bear arms. Now, if we look at historical context, even after the 14th Amendment, the Bill of Rights doesn't apply to the states. So I I actually think that was a really bad ruling because I think it just centralized power even more. I I think it I think it's kind of handed that to the people. Um, I I don't think that the the, that a state has the ability to uh, or has the the right or should have the authority to uh, abrogate somebody's individual liberties. And they have one uh, amendments, one through eight, are specific to individual liberties. If we have an individual liberty to keep and bear arms, you have an individual liberty to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed, and the states can't take that away. And I think that the Supreme Court was right in stepping in and protecting individual liberties there. Well, but while the Supreme Court's doing that, really all they did was say, state, you can't legislate for this issue within your own borders, while at the same time, Congress is gleefully, uh, you know, working away to pass oh, partisan gun control. I know. So, and I, I and I would argue that what they're doing is probably going to be unconstitutional. Oh, I mean, it most definitely is. I, I mean, as far as the federal government is concerned, shall not be infringed. And, and that's the end of the discussion. But that's that's why I brought this up at the state level. The Bill of Rights does not apply to the states. That that was the common understanding for a very, very long time in American history, actually all the way up until about the 1920s, 1930s. So that's uh, where even post 14th Amendment, because I know a lot of people like to say, well, that amendment changed everything. But it, it really didn't. If you read the case law in the immediate aftermath, uh, you got U.S. v. Crookshank. You got the Slaughterhouse cases. Uh, you even have the debates of the people who wrote that amendment saying no, we're doing this more so to codify protection based on skin color, not to open up a Pandora's box about what the 14th Amendment and the federal government can do to the states. So I don't know. It's I mean, it's an interesting case. I definitely think reasonable minds can disagree. But my, my stance on that is yesterday was a bad ruling, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't I don't um, I don't think that when the when the when the framers and, and granted the fra- the framers, of course, so the the people created the states. The state created the states created the constitution, and the constitution is what basically established the federal government. Uh, I I do not believe that there was any intention that it, it, that they felt so inclined um, to to uh, to write the uh, you know the, the Bill of Rights is what started off with as twelve, and they whittled it down to ten um, amendments to protect individual rights. And, you know, prima facie, it's it's to protect from the federal government. I don't think their intention was that. But the states can can trample on these as as freely as they want. No, don't think so. No, that was definitely Uh, the case, because you still had you still had, I think, four states after the Constitution is ratified. This is where you get Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist. We can, and I'm going to use the First Amendment as opposed to the Second Amendment on this. But with the First Amendment, you still have like four states who had state-established churches. They were all in the North. Uh, Virginia, after the ratification of the Constitution, there was a huge fight in the Virginia state le- legislature with uh, none other than Patrick Henry. He wanted a state-established church that that was going to have compulsory taxation to support the church. So there, there's definitely a lot of precedents there. And even all the way up to you get to uh, McDonald v. Chicago in 2010, you have a very long history of local gun control ordinances. I mean, back in the Old West, I'm sure you've probably seen the movie Tombstone, 
Uh, Tombstone yeah. actually forbid guns completely. You, legally speaking, you could not enter Tombstone armed. You had to check your uh, firearms with the sheriff's department. So there, there's a lot of history with that. And same thing with U.S. v. Crookshank. That, that was a case that specifically said after the 14th Amendment was passed, this does not apply to the states. So, we, I mean, we can quibble over all that. But even James yeah. Madison, when he introduced the Bill of Rights, he specifically said this is only to secure the basically liberty of the citizens and the powers of the states against the general government. So he he introduced that. Uh, he gave a big, long speech about it when he brought it on the floor. So there, there's a lot of stuff there. But I would much rather have somebody say, you know, I, I'm going to maintain the right of people to be able to protect themselves versus I'm just going to go along with whatever the state says arbitrarily. Yeah, no, I, I do. I do think that there is that when, uh, you know, when when our when our founders established the Constitution and the federal government, they absolutely wanted uh i mean you know nine nine and ten clearly indicate their intention that the states would have very broad uh almost limitless power um i don't think that they ever foresaw or or anticipated states uh becoming tyrannical uh because i i think they thought that the states were were closest to the people and again the people created the states the states created the uh the constitution so I, they were more concerned with a tyrannical uh, federal government. I don't know that they necessarily foresaw states uh, becoming more oppressive than than a than a large, you know, centralized federal government. And and I, I watched this with places like Colorado, New York, um, and uh, California becoming very very uh very oppressive with their with their populations i suppose a contrary uh, you know argument to this well you're free to leave you you can go to a state that's uh that's more more open i i i i suppose that is um an argument i don't know if this is the best argument but i i do i do believe that state governments uh need to respect the individual liberties and they do not have the the authority to do that. Yeah, I, I know there were, there were towns in the old West. I grew up in the, I grew up in the, the, the cowboy West, you know, there were and tombstone been, been through there a thousand times. Um, yeah, I, I, just because they did, it doesn't mean that, that it shouldn't have been argued. Well, and we can quibble, we can quibble over that because I agree with you. It should have been argued, but I would say you have to argue it from the right perspective, which in my opinion, take this for what it's worth. But in my opinion, would be the citizens of that area saying, "Okay, we don't like this. We want to amend the state constitution and take away your ability to do this. Uh, And and that's the same thing I would say for the people of New York. And uh, as far as the, you know, free to leave argument, I do think that has a lot of weight because you look at like what what was going on with covid in places like California and places of that nature. uh, People were fleeing. I I mean, they're still leaving Illinois. People are leaving there by the millions. So I think that has a lot of weight because that, in my opinion, is a much, much stronger way to punish those states. If they're not going to be responsive to the people who want to change the law within the state, then they're going to lose them and they're going to lose that tax revenue. In Illinois, uh, I mean, really, it's on the the brink of bankruptcy as a state. So I I think their chickens are coming home to roost. And uh, I, I do truly, firmly believe that that is a much better way to punish them versus having the Supreme Court bail them out of those bad decisions. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I will, will probably <laughs> disagree on this one. I, I, I think those, those rights are given to the people irrespective of a, uh, 
you know, what level of government they may be closest to them. And I do think that it is up to that, that uh, the local government being closest to the people to preserve our, our individual liberties and rights. Well, fair enough, fair enough. But we'll go ahead and move on. So yeah. now with your nullification plank, you, you did mention some things specifically in there. So mass mandates, vaccination mandates, red flag laws, and stay-at-home orders. So all four of these, as far as I'm concerned, reading the Colorado State Constitution, totally unconstitutional at the state level, probably even at the federal level. So what is your stance in particular on those? You simply don't you don't enforce them. I'll, I'll table red flag for now because that is that's an act of legislation. The, the mandates and orders, those 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 aren't law. That is that that's not law. And the executive uh, branch of a, of a government it cannot um, bind uh, a citizen uh, by by a decree, by an order, by by a regulation. That is an act of legislation. And uh, if you read, there's a, a scholar, a legal scholar named uh, Philip Hamburger. Uh, wrote a, a a a booklet, I guess, about sixty seventy pages long, about the administrative powers and and how and how those uh, are uh, they 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 violate the con- our constitution in that these only the legislation through through acts of Congress through acts of legislation uh, can bind a uh, citizen. So a a governor cannot order someone to remain in their house or to wear a mask or to to perform in a, a certain way to do a certain thing that has to be through an act of legislation. So those those laws, or they weren't laws, those orders, those mandates, uh, patently uh, unenforceable. And I, I think it rather folly that, that any uh, policing agency would have tried to enforce them uh, under under what authority could you could you uh, penalize somebody for not following an order from the uh, the executive? Uh, the executive has under his or her chain of command those functionaries within the executive branch, and that's that's really the the extent of it. Um, I'm I'm kind of familiar with executive orders, having worked for the federal government. You know, if the president writes an executive order, we're bound as agents to obey it, you know, unless of course it's, you know, patently unlawful, but you know, the, the president was in my chain of command. President is not in, uh, or a governor is not in a uh, private citizens chain of command. Absolutely. And so, you know, Polis, it, it was so weird. So Polis is our governor here in Colorado for the audience, but it was so weird because at first he was like very hesitant to use any of that sort of authority or power and then once he embraced it, to me, it was kind of like Darth Vader. Uh, you know, I, I've altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it further. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, e- even at the height of Colorado's insanity, it was a. Uh, I I almost regret saying this, but it really was a, a breath of fresh air to live here versus somewhere like Washington. Did you travel at all during the height of all this? Um. So I went. I was kind of back and forth between D.C. and here, and yeah, it was a. Uh, it was it was weird uh, going through different different places, you know, and how they were uh, imposing or not imposing uh, those those mandates because they they were all they were all state level. Um, the 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 feds I don't recall the feds ever making a, a a nationwide. They made recommendations, but it was really up to the individual states to to do or not do that. 
Right. Well, but here, so here it was bad. Like I added Apex. If you went like to a Walmart or anything here in Colorado Springs, I mean, the vast majority of people would be playing along. Um, as time wore on, at least down here. Uh, so I'm actually, I'm closer to fountain, but down here, a lot of people just kind of stopped complying, which I was very yeah. grateful for. But Good. once we had stopped complying down here, uh, my wife is originally from Washington state. We went out there to visit her family and it, I mean, it was utter insanity and you had security guards, like private, <clears throat> excuse me, private yeah. security guards who were enforcing it. You had some police who were, I, I don't want to really say enforcing it, but like if they were there, they would definitely say something. And it was, a, uh, it was insane because coming back here, I mean, this felt like the freest place in the world, unless you were up around Denver and Boulder. Yeah. Um, I know the, uh, one, one or two of those ski resort, uh, uh, towns and or counties actually passed ordinances uh, criminalizing, you know, not wearing a mask. Wow. I forget which ones. It yeah, again, it like, I don't know, like Vail or Aspen or someplace like that, or Summit County might've, might've done something like that. And I thought that was, you know, wow. Talk about a, talk about a just going way too far. Oh, definitely. And, and to yeah. your point too, about the authority of the sheriff, th- this is one case where, you know, every Colorado County is not the same in, in terms of population density and in right. terms really of the impact of, of what this could have done just because of the sheer lack of people there. So it definitely was something I think that should have been a little bit more decentralized. I know when they first started all this, Polis was very, very heavy handed when he finally started enacting this stuff. But, you know, like I said, as time wore on, it, it seems like different parts of the counties and, and even the counties themselves just kind of said, eh, we're, we're, you know, we're kind of going to do our own thing. But uh, following this up, I did want to ask this. This is actually something one of my listeners specifically wanted me to ask. So I know you said the sheriff is elected by the people. Therefore, the sheriff has a lot of authority when it comes to local enforcement. But exactly how much authority in your mind or I mean, if you can have any case law or something like that to give us an example, how much authority does the office of the sheriff actually have? Um, I'm not really sure how to how to answer that without something, a specific example. I, I mean, there's the, uh, you have the whole, you know, compendium of, uh, of statutes, right. To, to, to enforce just like any other police department, but the, you know, the, the sheriff runs the jail, uh, is the fire warden, uh, search and rescue. Uh, but the sheriff has the authority and I would argue the responsibility to investigate and take action against any, a, a criminal activity, a crime that happens within that county anywhere in that county and that means in the cities that means uh committed by uh other public officials or elected officials so if i and we've seen a couple of examples and i think these are good examples and they're right of a couple of sheriffs in in wisconsin and in arizona that investigated and brought charges for election uh uh monkey business we'll we'll say so i that 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 is within the scope of the sheriff. It, it is it is a type of uh, you know, keeping of the peace. It's and those are those are crimes that need to be looked at. Uh, if somebody and it, all it takes is reasonable suspicion to open an investigation, and reasonable suspicion. Uh, an example that I've used with, with people is if you um, you know, if you called the uh, if you called you know the the police, the sheriff, or whomever, and said, "Hey, it looks like there's a there's a dead body on my neighbor's yard." I mean, 
you would expect then for a patrolman to be sent out to that location to go look, wouldn't you? Right. So that's, that's, re- that's, I mean, that's, that's reasonable suspicion. <laughs> that's, oh, that's, all, that, that's, 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 that's all that is necessary. That doesn't mean that you go with a SWAT team and kick in someone's door. You go look to see if, well, it looks like, sounds like maybe something uh, bad or malicious may have happened. We'll go look. And if there's nothing there, then you have nothing more to go on. If there's something there, then you keep going and you just you follow evidence where it takes you. If it becomes probable cause, well, then you have, uh, you know, enough that that degree of suspicion to start, you know, seizing evidence and and writing arrest warrants if you have uh, suspects identified. But that's you you build up you build up to that. Um, and if it doesn't, if it doesn't take you there, then it's over. It doesn't take you there. Okay. Now with, with this, you, you sort of mentioned it in passing with the election stuff, uh, funny business. So you have a plank in your platform actually talking about the investigation of election fraud <laughs> when there is reasonable suspicion. Now, I don't think anyone being remotely honest can deny that something fishy happened in 2020. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Yeah, uh, but I guess specific to that, uh, in terms of sheriff's authority, like what what can the sheriff do to actually force some sort of transparency? Like, let's say if there's a clerk or something that y'all maybe have suspicion of, but let's say a local judge refuses to write a warrant, th- then what can you do, or or if anything? Uh, that yeah, that would be difficult. I um. I think that would be exceeding uh, my my constitutional authority to to seize or or make an arrest without without a uh, without a probable cause warrant and unless it's in plain view. Okay. I mean, we we could yeah. Um, any any uh, any po- police officer or agent can seize evidence or or make an arrest without a warrant if it's in plain view. If you see, if you, you know, you, you see it happen in front of you, you don't need to go get a warrant, but for things of that nature, where it's, you know, where it's a, a, a you know, a crime that happened, say in hindsight, and you're now just following trails and you don't get a, you don't get a warrant that uh, um, the, the best I can give you is I'd, I'd have to, I'd have to play that one as it unfolded. Okay. Uh, and, and you could potentially find a different judge. Okay. So I, I, I mean, I mean on, yeah, honestly, if you, if you can't, you plead your case to one judge, uh, I mean, you, you, you appeal to a, to a higher authority, I think. Um, but I, I would also point out that, you know, in, re, for these elections, what should have happened is there should have been DOJ should have looked at it. DOJ should have opened an investigation and and brought us to some sort of uh, conclusion. And a, within the states, I think the attorneys general should have looked at it and opened investigations and brought us to some sort of conclusion. Uh, it should not have had to devolve down to the level of the counties to look at this. This these uh, these should have been very uh, broad sweeping. Um, I'll say com- complex investigations that considered uh many different locations all all at once 
Yeah, I definitely think state authorities should, should have been involved, especially, uh, what was it, Georgia? Yeah. That, that, uh, they had a couple of questionable counties. At, at that point, it's like, yes, okay, you have the authority, you know, ostensibly just for this purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Use it. So it's, uh, I definitely I agree with you there. Now, the last plank that you mentioned revolves around any and all federal authority within the confines of El Paso County being cleared through the Sheriff's Department first. Um, I actually, I do think that this is awesome before they can really take any sort of action, but why is that so important to you? Well, so for, for we'll, I'll use the, the, the least offensive <laughs> uh, example is for, for, for one thing, you don't want to have a blue on blue event. Uh, where a, one agency is taking some action, uh, somebody sees it, calls it in, and you think, and you're, you're responding to what you think is a crime in progress when perhaps it isn't. And then you have, you know, federal agents and local agents, you know, go, going, you know, guns pointed at each other because they don't know what the other is. Uh, so there's there's just the, we'll call it officer safety aspect of this that you need to know when something is going to happen so that you don't uh you don't wind up creating a dangerous situation so and that and that's common sense operationally that that i would i would uh like to think that all law enforcement uh tend tend to uh at least inform one another when something is going to happen but uh when it comes to say you know the actual enforcement by a by a federal agency that the sheriff is actually res- responsible for the you know the keeping of the peace and the preservation of individual rights and safeguarding his citizens rights so it is right that the sheriff should be presented with the warrant and the uh the affidavit of probable cause and to essentially illustrate that they did their homework this is this is a legitimate warrant and their and probable cause really does exist for them to take action X Y Z against uh, somebody within your county. Absolutely. And then the second part of this plank uh, is you also state that you would withdraw El Paso County sheriffs deputies from constitutionally dubious federal local partnerships. Yeah. Can you give us some examples of what those types of partnerships are? The 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 one the one that comes to mind, and I, I dealt with them quite a bit, and they weren't always this bad, but under this administration, they've become <laughs> that way. Is the Joint Terrorism Task Force that yeah. is that has been that has been used now to uh, basically um, for for political uh, expedience, you know, really targeting. Political enemies are now become branded as as terrorists. I mean, it's real easy to to paint a broad brush and you know decide that well, a terrorist uh, means whatever you want it to mean because it's a bad word, right? It's just like we're all Nazis too, you know. So, so you mean to tell me that there's a chance that maybe some of these federal agencies have been weaponized? A hundred percent. Yeah. Oh. Oh, I, oh, about that, I, huh? I can't take it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I know. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, there, there's a. Uh, I um, I would welcome the bandwidth and the capability of a federal agency to help me uh, find a kidnapper to go after a uh, a serial killer, and, and I long for the days of when, you know, the FBI came in and, and hunted down uh, Ted Bundy or, you know, the, or uh, John Wayne Gacy or, you know, pe- people, people like this, you know, real criminals that are actually, 
you know, harming people. Um, but they're, they, they seem to exist now. And this is why whoever's in charge of these agencies is so important is their direction and their effort has been turned against people who are enemies of the government. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, and even enemies, I mean, we, we can just use that term even loosely. If we look back to the IRS scandal, what was that back yeah. around like 2014 or so? So there's definitely um, lots of problems there. And I, I really think it kind of introduces a conflict of interest as well, because you look at the Whitmer kidnapping plot, it turns out most of the, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but most of the masterminds behind constructing that were federal agents. So it's like, yeah, you know, what, what's, what's really their end goal here? To, to, yeah, to, 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 to develop, to uh, um, not develop, but to cultivate and to grow a political narrative, uh, the, you know, showing that how nope, the people who are who are on the on the on the right wing of of the political spectrum are all dangerous terrorists, up to and including kidnapping, um, you know, heads of state. So, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then one other thing I wanted to bring up regarding your campaign site is that in your bio page or your about page, you talk about the importance of we the people. We've talked about the importance of citizen consent a lot in this episode. So I just out of curiosity, would you consider yourself kind of a more populist oriented conservative? Yeah, 100 percent, man. Um, I'll, I'll do what I told Richard Randall a couple of weeks ago. I was on his show and he asked me if I would. Uh, you know, if not, if you're not successful in the, um, you know, the primary uh, election, will you support the Republican nominee for the office? And I told him, I said, I'm doing this for the Republic, not the Republicans. <laughs> so, funny. yeah, I, I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess in order to, you know, to 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 swim in the pool, to swim in the pool, you got to be a member of the club. Right. But uh, no, I'm not. This isn't my team, do or die. Nope. This is for the for the people, for the republic. There were no parties when we framed the constitution, and I, uh, I, I every day I go grow more fond of uh, Washington's, you know, farewell addresses, uh, warning against uh, you know, partisan politics and factionalism. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, uh, Mr. Watkins, I do want to thank you again so much for your time today and for joining us on the Jeffersonian tradition. I do want to wish you the best of luck in your bid for sheriff this year. And for my Colorado listeners out there, make sure you get out and vote on June 28th, 2022. Thank you, sir. Please remember, we are expecting Little Miss Jeffersonian to come kicking and screaming into the world later this year. So if y'all want to help us out with any of the expenses we expect with her, I have a link for a registry in the show notes page. Or if you would like, please consider becoming a contributing member so we can defray some of the diaper expenses. I call it helping me establish my diaper fund. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your go-backs today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to y'all next time.